It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Welcome to Vax Talk. This is a podcast for people who get excited about vaccines that completely prevent all disease and vaccines that prevent severe disease mostly. Yeah, this is a podcast for people who understand what a vaccine is and how a vaccine can have uh, a wide variety of uh, ways that it benefits you. So uh, sometimes it totally with almost, uh, you know, 90 plus percent efficacy prevents infection. Sometimes most important thing it's doing is keeping you out of the hospital or keeping you from dying. That's right. Also, a special welcome, and I will just say this is also the podcast for people who listen to um, Bob Sears' podcast and will give us a one-star rating later. So welcome to you as well. Hi. Thanks for not listening. (laughs) Or thanks for hate listening. However you listen, you are welcome to listen. We're glad to have you. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And this is Dr. Nathan Boonstra from Blink Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And we are so happy to have you here today. Later on in the podcast, I will talk to Dr. Bill Schaffner from Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And we will be talking about things that COVID is doing to other respiratory infectious diseases like RSV and influenza in particular. Sort of some weird stuff going on and I really wanted to ask him some questions so I made it into a podcast and he is of course amazing and smart and classy and handsome but you won't see that in the podcast and so that that is uh, what we've got going on for the interview. Well, I can tell you as a pediatrician, we certainly felt that, that uh, respiratory illnesses are all off kilter and occurring at different seasons than we're used to. So this is going to be a worthwhile interview for everybody to listen to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially the part where, I'll just tease this, I ask him how to game my flu shot to just time it just right. So listen in for that. <laughs> listen all the way through. But first... Nathan and I haven't spoken for a while, so I'm really curious what your around the web is. Karen, for me, it's mostly talking about COVID vaccines for kids six months of age to four years of age, which as of this recording are authorized by the FDA and now recommended by CDC. And so really areas should this week be able to start distributing them. Clinics should be able to be getting them. How exactly that's all getting done is, I think, going to be a scramble for all kinds of different places. And I think access is going to be tricky early on because I don't know exactly how widespread they're going to be given at pharmacies and clinics. But I am very thankful that families have been waiting for this are going to be able to somehow get their kids immunized this week. Uh, Everybody except, uh, I feel bad for those in Florida that might have it a little bit trickier as apparently Florida has chosen not to pre-order any vaccines and not have any state-sponsored programs to distribute vaccines to this age group. Though my understanding is it's going to be possible for clinics to order directly from the federal government. 
unfortunately that's still going to be access issues there so i think that's very very far-sighted for them so this is exciting for those families because i know for a lot of parents it's been difficult knowing how to navigate the world with your completely unprotected young child uh it's scary when our kids get sick especially with respiratory things but as a pediatrician how excited are you about this pretty excited and one of the things that i try to bring up to people is for pediatricians this is not a political issue it really bothers me how much this is used as how much these vaccines of any age group but especially for kids is being used as as a political to score political points because for pediatricians we don't worry about what political party is in power and recommending vaccines we look at the data and say you know what this is a good idea or this isn't. And immunizing, yes, absolutely. Is it true that kids under the age of five are less likely to have serious outcomes with COVID than the elderly? Of course it is. Is it still a significant health threat to this age group? And is it still a tragedy that we're losing kids to COVID you know, this year? Of course it is. And it's a very good idea to immunize your child if you don't have any medical contraindications to immunize in this age group, if it's available. For sure. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad you said that about not being political about it, because I think parents also need to hear, you know, you can go to Dr. Boonstra and he's not actually going to ask you how you voted. He just wants to protect your kid. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> no. That's the one of the great things about pediatricians is, and pediatrics in general, is that it's always about a child. It's always about best decision for a child all that other stuff doesn't matter <laughs> it's not the child's fault what situation they're in that child needs medical care that child needs to be protected against disease and that is true of COVID as well well fantastic i am very excited for you parents out there who've been waiting for so long and are excited to get it um and the parents who are still unsure you know um hopefully all of the kiddos in your play group get it and you see that the kids are fine and then it makes you feel at ease for getting COVID vaccines. So hopefully we can protect our kids and the whole of society as we go forth and try to navigate this world where we are doing everything we can to make COVID less of a threat. Absolutely. So I'm going to turn to Maya around the web, which is a lot less conciliatory than yours. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I was surprised to learn as I navigated Twitter that our um, old friend, Andrew Wakefield from the United mm. Kingdom had pivoted from his old drumbeat about mm -hmm. autism and vaccines to okay. make another film about, oh, no. yeah. About, this is news to me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad I'm breaking news, but he's making a new film about infertility. Oh, no. Yes, it's pretty terrible. No. And the worst part of this is that it is based on that old, old rumor that they were trying to percolate right before the pandemic mm -hmm. of the tetanus vaccines in Kenya. Oh, no, man. Yes. Oh, he just does the worst things. Oh. It's like he needs a mustache to twirl sometimes. Yeah. I bring this up, of course, we could just like talk about 
how horrible of a human being Andrew Wakefield is. But I want people to be aware of this because fertility has really become the pet cause of people who really want to instill fear in other people about vaccines. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I know we'll hear it with, you know, don't vaccinate your babies, you'll make them infertile, which just seems a little bit wild. But the pernicious and terrible thing about this rumor is that it targets a segment of women who are getting Tdaps or tetanus vaccines to prevent neonatal tetanus, which is something in the United States and other Western countries that we don't worry about. But in places where healthcare is perhaps a little more precarious, like, you know, outposts in rural areas in Kenya, women can be exposed to tetanus and pass it along to their babies who can really have a terrible, terrible time of their very brief short lives before they die mm-hmm. from yeah. Yeah. an awful disease. And it was based on, you know, someone apparently took a tetanus vaccine and did a test and found a hormone in it that can change a person's fertility. And the test was really poorly performed and when no one could ever replicate the findings but the rumor as we know stuck because rumors are really hard to debunk once the bunk is out there which is why i want to raise alarms about this i don't think that andrew wakefield is going to have a grand andrew wakefield renaissance in his quest to have more babies die of neonatal tetanus. But I do think that it certainly foretells that concerns about fertility in particular are going to be around for a while and that we should be very forthright in talking about what vaccines do and how Mm -hmm. it is implausible to believe that any vaccine could affect a person's reproductive organs at all. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. That's just not how vaccines work. And when it was, you know, we saw this, it, the fertility makes a very good boogeyman for the anti-vaccine movement because it's one of those things that is, you know, oh, something down the line. You can't, you can't prove that this isn't happening right now, that something's going to be happening that causes a problem down the line there with fertility, you know. And it's something that kind of strikes that just an emotional cord with people. But we saw it with HPV vaccine, which didn't make any sense with HPV vaccine, even though, you know, at least with HPV vaccine, you're kind of talking about a vaccine that has to do with an infection that has to do with the reproductive system. Not that the vaccine does anything different than other vaccines and that it is still just making antibodies in the blood there. It's, it's not doing anything. Right. Uh, it's, it's not doing, it's not like getting that. close yeah. to the reproductive organs unless <laughs> right. like your arm is made differently than mine. <laughs> and with COVID, now we've seen that boogeyman come up with COVID as well. And I, I do think that that's something that the anti-vaxxers are going to be able to beat that drum on because it's just something that's both pulls it at one's kind of emotional chords and is something that's a little more you know, like a lot of these things that, that the anti-vaccine movement loves to, to touch on, a little bit vague in terms of like, do we know everything about what the causes of infertility? Do you know, this is kind of something that is a little bit less tangible, something that could happen to your child down the line. And so I think that's something that they're able to capitalize on and, cap- and, 
any of the cystic fear. Absolutely. And I think that you're right on that. It's sort of that concerns about fertility and not a full understanding of what makes one person fertile and another person not as abundantly fertile or infertile, misunderstandings about how common things like miscarriage are, Mm -hmm. which are unfortunately very common. All of those misunderstandings or openings as far as not having, you know, complete scientific knowledge really makes fertility right. But it's also like one of those things where don't you want to have grandchildren, Nathan? You don't want to, you don't (laughs) want to chance not having grandchildren, do you? It's insidious. It's really terrible. It will absolutely shock everyone to find that this is a collaboration between Wakefield and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Yeah. (laughs) That's sort of this brain trust of grift coming. Yeah, I only have to look and see if Del Bigtree has got a credit in this. I'm curious. Well, you know, he he helped uh, produce and film Wakefield's first movie. Mm-hmm. So he just might, or he might be, he might be too big for this particular <laughs> venture. I'm not sure. Gosh, you know, it's just one of those things that really could spell disaster for a lot of people. And I have to say, the idea that, you know, there's this already disproven rumor that stemmed in Kenya, that's trying to preserve the lives of newborn babies, and they're they're turning it, and instead risking those lives. It's really it's grotesque, it's awful, and if they're willing to do it with that, there are all sorts of ways that they will take that um, in yeah. all sorts of directions. If they did it with with HPV, they could do it with mumps. And say, you know, the mumps virus can cause infertility. Why not the vaccine? Which is, of course, not at all how any of that works. Right. Yeah, the anti-vaccine movement, the leaders of the anti-vaccine movement, for sure, demonstrate time after time again that they will never not do the worst thing. That's right. And so, um, you know, again, if you're coming here from Bob Sears's podcast, and you're hate listening to us, I just want to invite you to look at how the vaccines work and think about how fertility works and where a person's reproductive organs are. Think about how the body works and try to see if you can reverse engineer how that would be accomplished through logical thinking. And you can have an interesting conversation with your physicians about that as well. But then slam that review button. Yeah, then slam. Go ahead, give us the one star. All right. <laughs> Everyone else, you know, you might want to offset it with like a, a five star would be nice. It's fine. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not begging for stars. I'm just saying it would be okay. All righty. Uh, we're going to talk, actually, just I am going to talk to Bill Schaffner. Nathan's going to listen um, at some point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just have to say, just to juice this a little bit, that um, Dr. Schaffner is really an amazing person to ask a question of, because he doesn't ask you ahead of time what you want to talk to him about. He doesn't have to do research. All of this information just comes 
spilling forth from his amazing, amazingly vast pool of knowledge. And I am often just sort of dumbstruck by how much he knows and how easily available all this information is right at the top of his head, just like you had asked him to prep on a question for hours beforehand. So once again, an amazing interview with Dr. Schaffner, and we'll see you um, on the flip side. We are joined now by Dr. William Schaffner, who is one of the great minds in infectious diseases and is also very important at Vanderbilt um, University. I forget your exact title. I'm so sorry. Karen, it's good to be with you and you're very generous in your comments. I'm a professor of infectious diseases and preventive medicine here at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, Music City, USA. I love it. That's so fantastic. And so glad to be joined by you today. I will tell you the precise reason I wanted to talk to you. Sometimes I put to get things together for this podcast because I have a question and I realize that if I have a question, other people probably have questions as well. And my question came from a Washington Post article. COVID is making flu and other common viruses act in unfamiliar ways. And the gist of the article was that hospitals even were seeing, uh, were admitted admitting pediatric patients for RSV, for influenza and parainfluenza, for even rhinovirus. And the, these they were not only admitting them, but they were admitting them in May and June, which is unusual. And I thought, I am so confused about what's going on with infectious diseases, particularly respiratory infectious diseases. So at this point, what do we know about how these common respiratory illnesses are behaving. So Karen, you may be confused about how respiratory diseases are behaving, but I have to tell you a secret. Don't let anybody else know. The experts are equally confused. (laughs) So uh, let's go over this a little bit. Let's start with respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, because you mentioned it. So that's a winter virus, right? Every pediatrician knows that, and that's what we teach our medical students. But last summer, we had a surge in RSV infections, such that they actually uh, required hospital admission, many of them. And that was unprecedented in the epidemiology of RSV. And what's happening this summer? Well, the summer is just starting, but I can tell you in my neck of the woods, Here in Nashville, we've started to see an uptick once again in unseasonal RSV infections. And we're not entirely sure why that's happening, but it's got to do something with COVID. There are two large theories. The first is having to do with the virus itself, that somehow COVID occupies receptor sites on the cells and for part of the time, either excludes or makes more ready the acceptance of RSV infections as such that it discombobulates the usual seasonal transmission. So that's kind of a virus host issue. 
The other issue, of course, is behavioral. And we talked about this a lot last year. You know, we've been locking up our kids, right? Uh, they didn't attend schools. They didn't even right. play together, get together in birthday parties. Did that provide an opportunity once we started to open up again and kids got together for the virus to be more readily transmitted among children, even though it wasn't the correct quote unquote season? And we still haven't sorted out whether this is more biological or it's more behavioral. But whatever happened last year appears to be happening at least starting in and around Nashville, Middle Tennessee, we're seeing echoes of what happened last year with RSV. So and that's really interesting. Yeah, go on. Just to pursue this a little more, we've had some funky influenza seasons, right? Right. During that time, when we were all social distancing in a very serious way, and our children indeed were not attending school and were not interacting, we had the lowest influenza season ever in, in record. That reminded us at how important children are in the distribution of the influenza virus in our communities. As we like to say, they have the distribution franchise. They spread it amongst themselves and then they bring it home and they give it to their older sibs, their, their parents, Aunt Susie who comes to visit and also to the neighbors because they produce more virus, shed more virus for a longer period of time than do adults. They really are the young spreaders. And when they didn't go to school and interact, obviously that played a major role in the epidemiology of influenza. Now, there were other things that happened also. We weren't traveling internationally. So there were probably fewer introductions of influenza from the Southern hemisphere to the Northern hemisphere. And since we weren't traveling within the United States as much, there was less travel related dissemination also. There were some concerns that because we had such a low influenza season, whether our immunity would wane and then this most recent season, 21-22, the one that we've just finished, could be worse. Well, what happened with this year? Also a funky influenza season. Well, it started out the way influenza seasons usually do. November, December, cases began to go up. That went into about the first week in January. And then, to everyone's astonishment, influenza plummeted it really fell off. And we said, my goodness, we're going to have another abbreviated season, except that didn't happen. That H3N2 virus, that was the dominant strain, began to pick up again and continued to smolder at sub-epidemic levels, but continued to smolder into April, into May, and is now, here we are in June, only starting to abate. So we had this long, late tail, T-A-I-L, of an influenza season that was just smoldering along. And it continued to be the dominant strain, which is also different, because usually 
late season influenza is the influenza B strains. They wake up and they cause late season influenza. No, we had almost no flu B this year. So we had the H3N2 strain throughout. It was clearly the dominant strain, showed up early, then fell off the cliff, and then continued to smolder for a very prolonged period of time. Clearly, this is another altered epidemiology, uh, influenza, RSV, both altered epidemiology as a consequence of COVID. We're sure COVID has kind of stirred the pot and confused the fellow respiratory viruses. And as I said, apropos of RSV, we're as confused about influenza as we are about our RSV. We don't really know exactly why this happened. And it could well be a combination of reasons, some biological and some behavioral on our part. Right. So that, you know, that brings me to all the questions I knew I would have once I, I knew that you would give me such a wonderful explanation of this. And that is, first of all, some of us like to game the timing of our flu shots. I'm not naming names, but I'm one of those people where I really like, I think about like, you know, last week of October, first week of November, and I watch the rates and I try to get in right in time. So I've got the most immunity when possible. Is that, is that no longer a thing for me? Am, am I doomed? Should I get two flu shots a year? What's going to oh, yeah. happen with my flu shot gaming? Well, let's talk about flu shots because we will be recommending them once again for everyone older than six months of age come this fall. The first thing is do not start too early. The flu vaccine will be out there in pharmacies, in clinics, uh, probably maybe late July, certainly in August, that the signs will go up. Do not get your influenza vaccine then. The only people who might want to start early are those children under the age of eight who are younger than eight who have not yet ever received an influenza vaccine because they need two doses separated by a month. If you're younger than eight years of age and you have not had that child vaccinated against flu, the first time they get flu vaccine, they need two doses separated by a month. And so a lot of moms will go to their pediatricians then with those young children, get the first dose, yes, sometime late summer, and then a month goes by and they'll have to bring them in again for that second dose. But other than those children under eight, first timers, the rest of us, should wait until late September, October anyway. And then there are people such as yourself who refine that even more and like to wait until the end of October. And why do you do that? You do it because you really want the protection to last because it's you're not so much worried about the front end of the flu season. Oh, maybe flu is gonna start early. You're not so much worried about that. You want to do everything you can to have protection last on the back end, right? In February and March of the next year. And that's why the CDC says it's ideal, ideal to be vaccinated during the month of October. I keep saying, keep vaccinating into November, right? And even beyond, 
if you have not received your flu vaccine, because flu usually, <laughs> when you talk about flu, I always have to laugh when I say usually, because it, it is so variable, but usually peaks in February in the United States. And of course, it doesn't peak everywhere in the US simultaneously. But nonetheless, if you find yourself in November or December unvaccinated, please get the vaccine. Yeah, it's those months when I say, you know, the best time to get your flu vaccine is before Halloween. The second best time to get your flu vaccine is now. <laughs> That's what I say in even February today. And it seems like we could keep saying that through June, maybe. Well, by that time, I think there are very few providers whom you'll uh -huh. find that still have flu vaccine. So let's focus on October, early November. That's the time for people to get vaccinated. The stragglers can keep being vaccinated. and We have to encourage the providers to keep up their vaccination efforts, not to slough off, uh, because there still will be a proportion of people in whatever practice setting you're in who will have eluded vaccination and will come in late November, December, even early January, vaccinate those people and then remind them to do it earlier the next year. That's right. I, I love that. Another thing I'm, I've been thinking about with, with children in particular and how we've seen you know, the way that we've ed educated children, um, whether they've been in school or um, at home, or if they've been in school masked, it's really changed how influenza in particular, as you pointed out, behaves in our whole society. But we still have such low, low, low immunization rates for kids. Do we have any solid evidence that if we were to raise those immunization rates that we could see in general milder influenza seasons for their grandparents and their parents? There have been a few studies that have alluded to that, Karen, that the intensive vaccination of children will have indirect effects in protecting other people in the population, but the evidence is not solid. But we anticipate, of course, that that's the case. Now, we always have to put the honest a uh, little asterisk next to that and say, you know, some years the flu vaccine is better than others. And so that always gets into the mix, right? We keep hoping that our colleagues who are working in the laboratories will produce more robust, more effective influenza vaccines. You know, when people tell us why they're not vaccinated, the major reason is they don't have a great deal of confidence in the vaccine. What they've heard is what we honestly tell them, that there's not always a good match. So if we're going to sell this car, we have to polish it up a little bit more. I like that. And I game, what the timing of my flu vaccine isn't the only thing I'm gaming. I'm like, would rather get a flu vaccine than not, because if I'm playing the odds, I know that even 20% is better odds than zero. Oh, that's a very, very important message. I keep telling my patients and anyone who will listen that even if the vaccine does not protect completely, it is very likely to protect partially. That is, it will make your more serious illness milder. You're less apt to be hospitalized. You're less apt to need intensive care unit admission, 
and you're less apt to die. What's wrong with that? I mean, it shifts the odds in the patient's favor. So it blunts the impact, the serious impact of the virus. If this sounds a whole lot like what we tell people about COVID vaccine, yes, these respiratory vaccines or these vaccines against respiratory viruses are like that. They often are able to prevent or abate serious illness, even though they might not be able to prevent every milder illness. But that's fine. A bad cold or a mild illness we can manage. We want to keep ourselves out of the hospital. That is very true for so many reasons. Even just if we're shortening the duration of an illness, boy, that's helpful for most people. I don't have two weeks to be sick anywhere in my schedule. So this has me thinking a few thoughts about seasonality. You know, the the flu, um, we're used to it sort of having these ebbs and... Waxes and wanes, right? Waxes and wanes, <laughs> Right. I was like, that just, we're used to the flu waxing and waning in sort of this yearly way. And mm-hmm. now it seems like it's kind of gone off its axis a little bit. We're still trying to figure out how COVID waxes and wanes and looking at that. And I have no idea when people ask me to make predictions about COVID right now, I just throw up my hands and I say, I just, I can ask someone but I am clueless at this point. I, I just, I plead the fifth. So I'm assuming you know more about COVID and how that waxes and wanes. Are we permanently changing through COVID being around the seasonality of flu and RSV? Has this, is this forever going to be different in our lives? Or do you anticipate that in some respects, we're just going to add COVID in, we'll get used to it, we'll figure out how to mitigate it and how to live with it in ways that keep people surviving through it. And then we will go back to regular programming with RSV, with influenza, with common cold, with the pink eye that I got last year for no reason, all of those terrible viruses. Well, there's no doubt regarding COVID, we've moved from the pandemic phase into some form of endemic. We're determining what that is, particularly with Omicron and its sub-variants. And then we're trying to learn how we can live with COVID and have that virus cause the least possible damage. You know, we do that with flu. I certainly believe that continuing vaccination is going to be fundamental for both. And I do hope, and I'm scientifically optimistic, that at some point down the road, we will have improved influenza vaccines. And by this fall, this very fall, we're likely to have COVID vaccine 2.0. And it may well be that this fall, we will ask people to roll up both their sleeves and get a COVID booster and their annual influenza vaccine. By next season, this is what the scientists in the laboratories tell us, there may actually be a combined influenza and COVID vaccine. So we'll go back to just rolling up one sleeve, but we'll get protection about, uh, against both kinds of viruses. We'll have to see how this all works out. I mean, with COVID, 
bear with us. We keep learning and we keep updating the information. But yes, I think we're going to have to learn how to have what I call a truce with COVID. You know, we're going to have to learn how to behave and how to vaccinate in such a way to minimize the adverse impact of that virus. And in doing so, we will be paying attention to influenza. And since we've mentioned RSV, as you know, Karen, there are both therapies and vaccines in the research pipeline for RSV also. So I anticipate within the next 10 years, we will see major changes in how we can mitigate the impact, the really adverse impact of these respiratory viruses in our population. Maybe not in 2022, but bear with me and have a bit of a longer horizon because there's an awful lot of work on better flu vaccines, new RSV vaccines, and improved COVID vaccines going on. It is incredibly exciting, but I want to ask you about a vaccine that exists right now, and that's the pneumococcal vaccine that's available for both children and seniors. Can that help us with our respiratory confusion that's going on right now? We're not confused. The viruses are confused. Can we, can we help mitigate that with a little bit of pneumococcal vaccine? Well, sure. And that's the, that's the bacterium, right? A much larger germ than the viruses that comes along and particularly apropos of influenza is a major cause of the pneumonia that complicates influenza. And so the recommendations are clearly for everyone age 65 and older to be vaccinated with the pneumococcal vaccine and if you have, if you're younger than age 65 and you have an underlying illness of any kind, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, a cochlear implant, you know, you've lost your spleen, anything like that, uh, talk to your doctor and they will look up which pneumococcal vaccines are appropriate for you. Uh, and then, of course, our children are receiving pneumococcal vaccines routinely. And that has had a profound effect in reducing the impact of serious bloodstream infections and meningitis in children. I mean, when I was a house officer uh, back when, uh, it was not unusual to see children admitted with pneumococcal meningitis and even adults. I have some vivid memories of taking care of patients. The current house staff, you can be an intern and resident today and complete your training and never see a case of pneumococcal meningitis anymore because of the widespread use of pneumococcal vaccine. That really is amazing. Is there anything else I should have asked you about respiratory infectious diseases that you are really wanting to get out into the world? Well, as you and I have been telling each other, the only constant is change. Yeah. So everybody ought to stay tuned. We're telling you the best that we know today. And there may be some viral and bacterial finagling in the future that changes things a little bit. But I would emphasize again, that we're having the development of new vaccines in all of these areas that will make major changes for the better 
as we go forward and vaccination will continue to be the absolute foundation as we minimize the impact of these diseases. We can just change things remarkably. Sir William Osler was known to say, pneumonia is the old man's friend. Dr. Osler, his eminence, was right about many things, but he was wrong about that. Pneumonia is not the friend of anyone. And these vaccines, all of them help us prevent pneumonia. Pneumonias are terrible because they make you air hungry. And there's nothing worse than not being able to breathe. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's why we all have that as a common nightmare, right? Well, you are just absolutely always the best person to ask about infectious diseases when I have really tricky questions. I know I can never stump you. Even if the answer is stay tuned, you know exactly how to tell people to stay tuned. And I really appreciate that. I want to end on just one fun question that I like to ask guests once in a while with a little twist. The normal question is, what's your favorite vaccine? My question to you is going to be, what's your favorite vaccine that isn't quite ready for the public yet? I'm going to change your question a little bit. <laughs> uh, my favorite vaccine that just recently has been recommended for every adult up to age 60 is hepatitis B vaccine. And I think we're really going to have to educate providers and patients that now every adult should be vaccinated up to age 60 with hepatitis B vaccine. We have the opportunity within a decade to interrupt the transmission of that terrible virus, which of course can lead to liver cancer in our population here in the United States. And that's a recent new recommendation of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Absolutely. Thank you. Great answer. I like how you changed my questions. Very good. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This was really exciting for me and super educational. My pleasure, Karen. Always. Thank you to all of you for listening today. I hope that you learned something new. I hope that it got you thinking about flu shots a little bit too and planning out how to get your flu shot and how to talk to people about flu shots after spending the last year and a half talking to them about COVID vaccines. It's all very, very important. But really, I think we need to have those conversations again, the good old fashioned flu shot conversations. And uh, with that, I guess we'll say goodbye. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, I thought you were going to say something there, but he's not. I it's fun. would. I still have to listen to the interview, and then I will have more to contribute. All right. So look for him on Twitter. But in the meantime, I'm Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us two places now. You can find us online at voicesforvaccines.org. And you can find us in your app store, whether it's Google Play or the Apple Store. Just search for Voices for Vaccines. Get our app. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is PedsGeekMD. And also, if you want to stop by iowaimmunizes.org, mm -hmm. yes. uh, that is our state immunization coalition. So we would also uh, appreciate you dropping by there or finding us on Facebook and saying hi. Absolutely. Iowa Immunizes is the best. All right, folks, have a healthy, healthy week. Thank you. Bye. To learn more, visit faxtalk.org.